My job today is just to introduce our guest speaker for today, Clay Harris. Clay, why don't you come on up here? Uh, Clay works for Crew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was here with us, I believe, in the fall last. And so would you guys just welcome Clay. Who brought his own microphone. No, I'm kidding. Tom Sorry. gave him. Tom gave him the other one. And I had one job. I had to turn it on. It's like, okay, I can do that. I can press a button. Um, I'm excited to be here. So I think I say this every time I go anywhere. Thanks for having me, even though you didn't have a choice. Um, I mean, I guess you could have like objected last time I came, but like never again, that guy. Whoever he is, make sure he doesn't come again. Um, when John... When Pastor John asked me to preach, I told him one condition that I would only preach on Genesis 22 <laughs> because I'm teaching a class this summer. So I, I work with crew and um, I teach our staff the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. And this is a new passage we're doing. So I have been soaked in Genesis 22 for the last month or so and was like, that's the deal. Like, I, we, I will preach, but it's out of this passage. But. Um, as in all things, the Lord guides, and this has been a rough passage for me, just the Lord's, yeah, really working in my life, and so I hope it's a blessing for you. So let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your grace. Thanks for who you are, for your goodness to us, and I pray, God, that you would bless this time. Help us to experience you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I just realized, I don't have my watch. Okay. Um, I gave a message to a group of junior hires one time, and I went 45 minutes. So just something don't do with junior hires. Um, you know, they were mostly tracking with me, but afterwards the youth pastor kind of did one of these afterwards. Like, hey, buddy, that was a little long. Oh, okay, I just have no perception of time. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but for me, obedience is hard. I think of, you know, a kid playing out in the yard, and they're just having a blast, and Ma, you know, one of the parents is like, hey, come in for dinner, right? A really good thing. Come in for pizza. And the kid's like, no, I'm just going to focus. Like, I want to stay here. So even in the midst of good things, obedience is hard, but especially when what you're being asked to do is really hard for you. So, you know, two words, speed limit, right? It is just hard to obey, right? I don't know what it is. They could set the speed limit at 80 and I'm going 85, right? Like it does not matter. My temptation, I'm just like, no, I want to, here's what, here's it. I'm going to go a little beyond it. It is hard to obey. And I think, I think every human struggles with this. I think, I think we all as kind of a human humanity, we struggle with the idea of obedience. But I think as kind of hyper-individualistic Americans, Maybe we struggle even more, right? Because that, that means somebody else is trying to impose their will on me. And it's like, no, nah, I'm just going to go a little beyond it, right? That's the speed limit thing. It's like, you may have my best interests in mind, but I don't trust you. I trust me. And so we tend to struggle as a, as a human species, but even as Americans, to obey. When I was 12 years old, um, I was in my house, and my parents were going out on an anniversary date. And they said, okay, Clay no candles. I'm like, fine, no candles. So I'm sitting here, they walk out the door, and what do I do? I light a candle. So I light a candle on our mantelpiece, which did not have a cross on it, thankfully, but I light it on a mantelpiece, and 
being the extremely brilliant child I was, I lit the decorative candles, right? Not like a nice smelling candle in a jar that nobody's ever going to notice. I lit the ones that have never been lit before. So it's like, I don't know. I was never a smart child. And so I light these things. And of course, they're decorative. They're on candle holders. And I mean, this is just going bad to worse. And, and I do what my parents were terrified that I would do. I forget about them. And I go upstairs because I'm a strange child, and I clean my room, um, which my daughter can resonate with this. Um, I just, you know, I clean my room, and to, to boot, I was like, okay, I'm going to go for the closet, right? Like, not just the room. So I, like, take the doors off my closet. I put them against the door. And so I'm, like, barricaded in my room with candles downstairs, and I'm cleaning my closet, listening to music. And then all of a sudden, I hear this, so my parents, for whatever reason, had come home. Thank God. They came home. They walk in, and they look at their wall, which is ablaze. So the candles had, had dripped down, and they were on candle holders, decorative candle holders, and they flipped over and lit the wooden mantle on fire, right? This massive, dry piece of wood that has just been drying there for decades. And it just lit, that lights up, lights the drywall. And my mom, you know, sweet woman, once runs over and is like, (laughs) (laughs) my dad's like, I don't think that's gonna work. You know, so he goes and grabs, I don't know, water, the, you know, the uh, fire extinguisher that nobody ever thought they'd ever use. And so they put it out. And it's one of those moments where you get, you know, you get called down, they're like, did you forget something? I'm like, probably. You know, what did you think you forgot? I was like, I don't know. They're like, we're so mad at you, just go to your room. And I don't think I was ever punished for it. It was one of those, like, our whole house, my brother was there, my grandma was there, like, they're just praising the Lord that nobody died. And so, I didn't obey, even though my parents had the best interest in mind. I wanted what I wanted, even when they asked me not to. The story we're going to look at this morning in Genesis 22 is, what does it look like when obedience is painful? So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and turn to Genesis 22 with me. So as you're doing that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this up. As, as you step into a story, any story, whether it be Pride and Prejudice or it be Star Wars, you need to get kind of a setting for, for where are we at in this story? If we're just hopping into the middle of a Luke Skywalker saga, we need to know the background. What's going on? Who are the Jedi, right? We need to know characters. We need to know setting. And the same is true in the Bible. So we're in Genesis 22. In the large story arc of the whole Bible, Genesis is the beginning, right? That, that's what Genesis means, the beginning. In the beginning, and so the beginning of the story, as you guys, many of you who have been in church and, and around Bible, your Bible, you know that the beginning of the story is God. In the beginning, God created. And what did he do? He created this beautiful garden, this perfect paradise. And he, the crowning of his achievement, all, everything, the most beautiful thing he made was humans. And he said something special about these humans. They are made in my image, right? So they are image bearers. These humans are image bearers. They are unique. And God has a unique, intimate, beautiful relationship with these humans. And then the whole story spirals out of control, right? The whole story, it's going fine. And then this 
it just plummets. Our narrative plummets when Adam and Eve rebel against their sovereign. These are vice regents in charge of the whole world, and they rebel willingly against their sovereign God, and the world just collapses. We see Abel killing, we see Cain killing his brother. So we see the first murder happen. Then, then it spirals again, and, and we see war, and we see conflict, and then we see Noah, and God, God's so tired of this that he destroys, the, I mean, it is one of the most violent stories in all of scripture. God annihilates almost all of humanity. He annihilates almost all of the animals. It is just, what a stark contrast to where we began. And then we keep going and we get to this Tower of Babel, right? We're, we're creating the world. They're, they're reaching up. They're, we're going to make the world in our image. We're going to reach up to God. We're going to get back to that Genesis 1. We're going to get back there. And so God comes down and he says, enough. And he scatters the world, right? So this is the story. This is, that's Genesis 11, right? This is where we're at. And then the rest of the Bible is focused on one family on the face of the earth. God calls Abraham, the son of Terah, out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says, Abraham, I want you to go to Canaan. And I, in Genesis 12, 1, he says, I am going to bless you. And through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this, the rest of the Bible, if you're looking at the whole earth, the rest of the Bible, we started big picture and it gets smaller and smaller. Now it's just this one family. And the rest of the Bible is about this family. And all the way back in Genesis, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God made a promise. And he said that one day, the serpent who deceived Eve, his head will be crushed and the serpent will strike the heel of the one that crushes. And it is this promise for a serpent-crushing Messiah. And so the whole Bible, if you're reading through, you're like, are you the serpent-crushing Messiah? Right? We're looking at, at Cain and Abel. Is one of you it? Right? That makes sense. And murder. And then it's like, okay, Seth, are you it? And no. And Noah, are you it? No, you get drunk and passed out. No. Is it Okay, is it Abram? And it's like, no, it's not Abram, but through your family. The whole story we're looking at is this, are you the serpent-crushing Messiah? Is it you? Every character we're going through. So when we get to Abraham, we are, we are expecting this serpent-crushing Messiah. And God makes a promise and says, through your children, you will be blessed. Through, so he, he knows he's going to have a child. But as those of you that have read the story know, he and his wife can't have children. They're trying and they can't have children. They're trying. And finally, Abraham cries out to God and said, is Eleazar going to be the heir? Is, is my servant going to be the heir of promise? Is that what's happening? And God says, no. I promised that you will have a child. And he promises again and he re-ups the promise. And then eventually... When they are 100 years old, Sarah gets pregnant, and she has Isaac, 
the son of the promise, right? You guys know there was this like fiasco where Sarah's like, hey, if not me, how about my servant? Like, how is that going to work, right? And, and we know that Abraham's not this wonderfully moral upstanding guy because he's like, yeah, great idea, right? Like, not, not, he's not the serpent crusher, right? Like, he's also the same guy that, you know, passes off his wife for his sister twice, Right, like once you're like, okay, hey, Pharaoh, this is my sister, which is somewhat true, right? This is my sister, yeah, you can, I mean, just keep me alive, right? Okay, once, but then he does it again. Like, Abraham is not this guy, and yet God continues to be faithful. So Abraham has failed and failed and failed and failed every time God has tested him. But now, Abraham has held in his arms the child of promise, He has looked down at this little baby and says, God is faithful. And it seems as if in this story, something has changed in Abram. Let's read read verses 1 to 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. And early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, and took him with him with two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. Right? This, this, this is almost jarring on so many levels. Right? Number one, God is testing him. Right, which for our sensibilities, we struggle with that. James talks about, you know, God will not test us. And so yet, God is testing him. God is saying, I, I am going to test your faith here. Will you obey? And what is jarring to me is that Abraham does it. We don't get this back and forth. We don't get a Job-type lament. We don't get a lament psalm. We just get obedience. That's what we get from the text. We just get early the next morning. Abraham got up and he did it. He prepared the wood. He got the coal. He got the knife. He got the donkey. He got servants. He got Isaac, and they set off. Something has happened in Abraham's life where he is willing to obey, and not just obey on anything, right? Not just go to this mountain and offer a sacrifice. Do you hear the language that God lays on this? Your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. That's the one I want you to sacrifice. He's just laying this on. So there's absolutely no way Abraham can squirm out of this and Abraham just obeys. And I don't, again, I don't know about you, but I would struggle with that. <laughs> I, I would struggle with, 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 okay, take your son, take your child. Like, how do we do that? Even, even just believing God and hearing from God, I would struggle with. And yet Abraham simply obeys. He wakes up the next morning and he takes him. As we read Genesis, we see it seems that angels are speaking over and over again. They speak to Abraham, to Adam, to Eve, to Abel, to Noah. He called Abraham. And yet for me, I struggle to even believe that God's speaking to me. And, let, and then Abraham's just going and obeying. And some of you guys know, my wife and I, as, as Pastor John said, serve on staff with crew. And so we have to raise our own financial support. And, and we have been in a season of doing that. 
And about, um, about a month ago, I, have, I sat down and I was meeting with a guy, a spiritual director, and I sensed the Lord saying, we are gonna, I'm going to provide for all of your needs by May 9th, which is not my normal. I, don't, I, I struggle. Like I said, I struggle to hear God. I struggle. Does, you know, I really struggle to believe. Is God active? Is he real? Is he in my life? Like this is an active daily struggle. And yet in that moment, I said, my first reaction was fear. Right? What if God doesn't provide? What if God doesn't show up? What if this is a test? and I fail. At that moment, I was so overwhelmed by my own doubts that I lost sight of God's character. Instead of focusing on the circumstances, instead of focusing on God, I was focusing on the circumstances. Yet, this is not what Abraham does in this moment. It seems as if he is so, he has experienced God for the last 120 years. Faithful faithful, 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 that when God puts him to this final test, he can rely on God's character and he steps into that obedience. Abraham simply gets the wood, the donkey, the servants, and heads out. Let's pick up our story in verse four. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and asked, said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. The story fast forwards and passes over the journey. We just we we go from Abraham getting everything, them heading out, and all of a sudden we stop here. And, and when a narrative narratives have to be selective, right? It can't just be this running commentary. It's a story highlighting certain events and certain things. And especially dialogue is crucial. So anytime you're in a narrative and you see dialogue, you see words being spoken, you know this is really important, right? Because with the same amount of words, God, you know, the narrator could have told a whole swath of things, but instead he wants you to focus on these words. And so Abraham, the story takes time and Abraham addresses the servants, and what does he say? He says, the boy and I are going to go up, and we will come back to you. So we get our first glimpse into what Abraham believes. We get a first glimpse into what is going on. Abraham believes that God is going to raise his son from the dead. He fully believes he is going to kill his son, but he believes, and that's exactly what Hebrews tells us. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 tells us that Abraham believed that he would get his son back, Isaac, even from the dead. And so we get this glimpse. Okay, Abraham isn't just killing his son because he knows this son, this baby, is the child of promise. So God can't kill this son forever. And so he goes and he obeys. This man who had fled God 
fled the land that God had promised him because of a famine. He gave up his wife to Pharaoh. He, this weak and deceitful man, had experienced a profound transformation in his life because he experienced God's faithfulness. And he believed. He believed that God would provide. And so just, as I told you, this, this was just raking me over the coals. Do you believe God like that? Do I believe God like that? Do we believe that God is a God of the miraculous? Right. So often in my life, I'm like, yeah, God could have done that, but that could have been, you know, just a coincidence. God could have done that, but you know, it probably was just, it probably just happened that way. And I, I so often want to take away the miraculous from God because it's so hard to believe. Because if I believe in the miraculous, I have to wonder why he doesn't do it more. If I believe that he does something miraculous here, I have to ask the question, why didn't he do it here? Why didn't he do it when I needed it? If we believe that God raises the dead, we have to ask the question, why didn't he raise the dead when I wanted him to? If we believe that he provides for the starving and the hungry, why doesn't he provide for the poor that I know? This is a challenging aspect of who God is. And as, as you're in your series of a la carte Christianity, this is what we are tempted to do. We are tempted to piecemeal it out and say, well, I believe God will do this, but not this. I believe he'll do this and not this. And that's how we justify it, but we can't do that with God. God is an all or nothing God. Christianity is an all or nothing, all encompassing faith that demands everything from you. And so if you don't believe in the miraculous, if you don't believe God raises people from the dead, you can't be a Christian. Because he rose Jesus from the dead. And if you don't believe he rose Jesus from the dead, you can't be a follower of Jesus. And so we often talk about how he speaks to us. We talk about how he leads us and how, how we follow him and how he answers our prayers. But do we believe it? Do we share our faith with our neighbors like we believe that hell is real? Do we give generously knowing that it is more blessed to give than receive? Do we believe that every person, even the crazy conservatives and the radical liberals, are made in God's image? Do we believe that whoever the other is, that whoever the person that is frustrating you and angry, the person is made in God's image? Do you believe that the, the poor person who's asking for money on the streets of Chicago and who looks like they're doing just fine that they're made in God's image, or do we just walk by? Do we believe that God is who he says he is? And I struggle to live that way. Actually, as I was preparing this sermon, I was sitting in a library, and this guy comes up to me, and he starts talking to me, which is like, I don't know, I should have had my headphones in, right? Like, I'm in a library. Like, we don't talk. We don't do this. You know, and he's like, hey, are you studying the Bible? I'm like, I literally have 20 commentaries in front of me. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. What are you studying? I'm like, all of them say Genesis. All of them. I'm studying Genesis. You know, so we're talking. And he's like, can I sit here? I'm like, no, yes. <laughs> yes, you may. And so, I, I mean, honestly, I'm interacting with him, and I am doing the least that I can do to not be, like, overly rude, right? Like, overly rude is like, get out of here, I don't want to talk to you. So I'm being, like, Christian rude, right? Like, no, oh, that's interesting. 
oh, really? You know, I'm like, everything I can do to give him the nonverbals that I don't want to, you know. And so, um, and I sat down, my wife and I were talking later. She's like, do you think God wanted you to talk to him? I was like, no. (laughs) Do you think that maybe this story about faith and belief that you're studying had something to do with talking to him? It's like, no, I had to get this done. God couldn't have provided otherwise. I had work to do. She's like, uh-huh, okay. You just, you sit with the Lord with that one. So faith, do I believe, right? Like that is a moment. Do I believe that in these little circumstances, God will provide, that God would help me, that God could write the sermon in five minutes if he wanted to, right? God can do the miraculous, but do I believe it? No, I don't. Often, I don't live as if I do anyways, And so as we get back to our story, we feel the whole story slow down. Abraham, Isaac turns, and he asks the only question in the entire narrative. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Right, again, dialogue's important. Questions are important. Where is the lamb? And this sets it up, and we see Abraham responding, maybe politically, a little tactfully, like, the Lord will provide And I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what, I'm not in Abraham's head. But he genuinely believes that whether the Lord is going to provide Isaac and raise him from the dead or he's providing something else, the Lord will provide. I want to believe like that. I want you guys to believe like that. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not not withheld your son your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket was caught a ram caught by the horns. He went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place Yahweh will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of Yahweh, it will be provided. So for whatever reason, the narrative flies through, right? We're we're given this slow, painful dialogue between Abraham and Isaac. And then all of a sudden, we're at the top of the mountain. Isaac is, the altar is built, which would have taken time. Isaac is bound. He's laid on there. Abraham's got the knife. Like it just, the story just flies through this. But we have to slow down and realize that at this point, if Isaac was old enough to carry wood on his back, Isaac is probably in his late teens, early 20s. Abraham's 120, right? Like, we have to slow down and realize more is going on here. This is not some, you know, child whom Abraham has bound and controlled and and laid on the altar. Somehow, and in some ways, Isaac is a willing participant here. I, I don't understand it. But maybe he has inherited the faith of his father. Maybe he trusts his father. I I don't know what's going on here. But I know that Isaac had to help his father build that. And if Isaac had wanted to, he probably could have stopped his father from binding him. And so there's something going on here where Isaac believes. And if, if you don't believe it, 
Look at how often the word son appears. Son appears over 10 times in this narrative. It is this key word that over and over again, the narrator wants you to see the son is important. The son is important. The son is important. He has a key role here. He is not just some passive participant. The author wants us to feel the impossibility of what God is requiring. He is asking Abraham to do something that is impossible. And yet Abraham consistently keeps obeying him. And then we quickly have the angel of the Lord, who is later identified as God himself, commands Abraham to stop. And what he says, again, dialogue is important. What he says just so striking. I now know that you fear God. I now know it. You've passed your test because you did not withhold from me your son, your only son. So this repeated phrase of your son, your only son, you didn't withhold him from me. You gave me everything. You gave me the promise. You were not staying playing in, with the toys in the sand. You came to me when I called. You submitted to me, even though it didn't make sense. You trusted me, and as a result, God blesses him. The rest of the narrative, we see that God reiterating this covenant promise, I will bless you. I will make a great nation from you. Kings will come from you. This blessing is reiterated because he obeyed. And Abraham calls that mountain, the Lord will provide. He was foreshadowing in that moment a time where God would provide on that same mountain another son. God would send another son, another only son, another son whom he loved, a beloved son, Jesus. And he would put wood on his back and he would ascend that same mountain step by step, not under compulsion, not being forced, but willingly carrying the cross up the mountain. And he would be bound to that cross with ropes and nails but God would not stop the knife from piercing his own son. Yahweh will provide. When God provided the ram, it wasn't the lamb that Isaac was looking for. That would come thousands of years later in the lamb of God. And when Abraham was going to offer Isaac as a complete sacrifice, God said, you don't have to do that because there's another sacrifice coming. There is a greater sacrifice coming. There is the only hope that we have for life coming. And he is going to die, but he's not going to stay dead. Exactly like you thought I was going to bring Isaac back from the dead, that's what I'm going to do with Jesus. Because he died, and he stayed in the ground on the first day. And he stayed on the second day. But on the third day, he rose again from the grave, victorious, conquering sin and death. And that's what we have to believe in. That's the hope we have. When Abraham saw God provide and provide and provide, we have something even greater. We have the cross of Jesus Christ that hangs empty because he's not on it anymore. Because he is sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father, exalted, high and lifted up. And that's where we look. He is who we look for. He is our hope. He is our future. He is everything wrapped up in one. He is whom we delight in. And it's as we look at Jesus, seated at the right hand of God the Father, as we look at him, that we 
can believe that he does the miraculous. We can have faith to go out and share our faith. We can have faith to go give generously beyond our means. We can have faith to love the poor. We can step out because of what he's done for us. I think for me, the most striking part of this passage is that when God says, because you have obeyed me. So if we look, um, where did I, I just lost it. Let's read verse 15. The angel of Yahweh called to Abraham from heaven a second time. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as the numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the shore. Your descendants will take possession of cities of their enemies and through your offspring, singular, all nations on earth will be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed me. One of the thinking of a la carte Christianity, one of the things that's hardest for us who come from the Reformed tradition to understand and to believe is, is going to sound, is, it's so hard that it's going to sound heretical to your ears. Belief is not enough. It's not enough to believe right things about God. Don't believe me? James 2, faith without works is what? Dead, not, not like pathetic, not helpless. It is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, your instant, you know, good reform traditions coming up and it's saying, wait a minute, I thought I was saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and you totally are. But if it doesn't have works that go with it, that's not faith. How do you judge a tree? You can't look at the root. You look at the fruit, What does Jesus say in 17? That they may bear fruit. We are to be fruit bearers. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. If you're not seeing that in your life, if you're not seeing it in other people's lives, you don't believe. Or at least I want to put that to you. If you're struggling with those things, not just struggling, if you're not seeing them, if you're not seeing works of righteousness in your life, Do you believe? If you have no work and you have no faith, Jesus tells us that you cannot love both God and money. So if you love money to the place where you won't give it to God, do you love God? You cannot love God and be a racist. You cannot do that. They're not, they're mutually exclusive. You cannot love God and hate his image bearers. You cannot love God and hate your enemy, even the political ones, even the pundits that you despise. You cannot hate them and love God because they are made in his image. Jesus says we are to judge a tree by its fruit. And so we have to look at the fruit of our lives. Obedience is not taking Christianity as a piecemeal, a la carte menu, but as a holistic worldview flowing from God the Father. This involves what 
uh, a, a theologian, Carl Ellis, talks about is side A and side B of theology. Side A is our beliefs. What do you believe about who God is? These are all the doctrines you know and love. These are the things we tend to talk about in classes, right? We tend to talk about the doctrine of the image of God or, or the doctrine of sin or the doctrine of creation. These are the things we believe about God. But Dr. Ellis looks at it as, you know, these things that are like records or tapes where they have a side A and a side B. And the side B is what we do because of those beliefs. If those beliefs don't change your actions, you don't believe them. And this is what he calls ethics. Ethics is your own understanding of what is good and right and what is evil in the world. That's what ethics is. Your understanding of what is right and what is wrong in the world. All of us, because we're all human, we're all raised in a culture, all of us believe certain things, our, our ethical worldview is with, believe rightly, and some of us believe some things wrong. All of us. Because we, we have a culture, and that culture has discipled us. And as a result, there are some things that we believe that are correct and some things that we believe that are wrong. And, and our, our Christian worldview is going to overlap with the culture in some ways, and it's going to not overlap. And if your worldview completely overlaps with any sort of news program, you are not, I can almost guarantee you don't have a completely Christian worldview. Just because you're not watching a Christian give a Christian perspective on the news and politics in the world, you're watching somebody that is purporting their political views. And so the Christian worldview is this Bible tells us what is right and what is wrong. Our goal as Christians is over our lifetime as a community to make our worldview come in line with God's, to make our understanding of right and wrong align with God's. So when we want to know what is right and wrong, we don't necessarily need to turn to the news. We don't necessarily need to ask friends. We need to first and foremost go here and go to one another. It is through this community that God is shaping you. That, that's what happens here every Sunday morning. Even on the Sundays you guys go do Serve Sunday. God is shaping your worldview. He is bringing you, the way we talk about it, he's bringing you into conformity into the image of God. He is shaping you. He's helping you understand that, that pornography is wrong and evil and, and slavery is wrong and evil and racism is wrong as evil, but, but so is homophobia is wrong and evil and, and so is not loving our gay neighbors and, and so is being, being rude and mean to the trans community. All of that is wrong and evil and God hates it. God, God wants to shape us and, and chip away, and, but he doesn't do it alone, right? This is one of the bigger fallacies of the American idea is that we are our own independent people and what happens to me doesn't impact you. That is absolute hogwash. What happens to you impacts me. I am, we are social creatures by God's design. And so what happens to you impacts me. What God is doing in you impacts me. And God is here every Sunday morning, here or out there, God is shaping you. Whether you're, at, uh, you're in a class, God is shaping you. If you're in Bible studies, God is shaping you. If you're meeting with another believer over the table at dinner, God is shaping you. That's what he's doing. The whole Christian life is being shaped and morphed and turned into God's image. And the challenging thing is that God expects 
that obedience. That's where he's coming in this passage. Because on the mountain, Yahweh will provide. Because he has provided Christ our Savior, we can obey. Because he didn't leave us helpless. This isn't a, I just need to act better. He sent his Holy Spirit to come in and fill us, to direct us, to show us what's right and wrong, and to empower us to do what is right and to say no to what is evil. And through the Spirit, through this community, that's what he wants to do. And so as you look back at this whole series of a la carte Christianity, God wants you to take the whole thing. He wants you to believe it all. And he's given his Spirit and he's given his Son to help you do that. And the story of Abraham points us to the fact that God has provided a Savior who will come. He has provided Jesus, and he is inviting you, and he's telling you your obedience matters, your faith matters. Because he says, because you have, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you. And so as you step out in faith, as you obey, as you do the hard things, as you share your faith with your coworkers, as you love on your gay neighbors, as you take a step to eradicate your own heart of prejudice, God will meet you there because God loves you and he wants you to be conformed into the image of Christ. Let's pray. God, you are good and you are kind and merciful. You are powerful and we need you. We depend on you, our good and gracious God. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for who you are. And I pray that even in, the, in this worship set, even, even in this moment, that you would meet us, convicting us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, and helping us to experience you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.